Last week I did a little experiment in preparation for this message this morning. I uh, googled the term instant America and I instantly got what I was looking for. Article upon article regarding the penchant that we have for immediate gratification and our impatience when we do not get it. So I want to share with you some of the gleanings from those articles. Patience was long considered a virtue, but it seems more like an anachronism today. DVRs have eliminated the need to waste time watching commercials, and viewers can get their entertainment fix immediately with on-demand movies. Why stand in line or make a phone call when smartphone apps let consumers book dinner reservations and buy movie tickets in seconds? And there's no longer any need to, uh, to wait to meet someone to date when apps using location-based technology can instantly connect people who happen to be hanging out in the same neighborhood. The demand for instant results is, keeping, is seeping into every corner of our lives, and not just virtually, by the way. Retailers are jumping into same-day delivery services. Amazon offers same-day delivery in some cities, which means packages ordered early in the day will arrive by 8 p.m. And if that still seems like eons, then just wait a few years. For Amazon's research and development team is developing prime air unmanned aerial vehicles, commonly known as drones, to get packages in customers' hands in 30 minutes or less. The Pew Research Center's Internet and American Life Project sums up a recent study about people under the age of 35 and the dangers of their hyper-connected lives with what sounds like a prescription drug warning. Quote, negative effects include a need for instant gratification and a loss of patience, unquote. Now, looking at how that has affected the way we act both online and in the physical world is an interesting question. An online graduate programs has produced an infographic that explores it. Among the findings is that Google handles, look at this, 3 billion searches per day. That's 34,000 questions per second. But, if, but that if we don't find what we want immediately, we often bail, even if the results take four-tenths of a second more to show, that will cut the number of searches on Google by eight million per day. Just four-tenths of a second. Perhaps the most obvious yet telling finding is that many of us simply will not wait for a website that takes longer than four seconds to load. And that's actually being lowered now. More recent findings have said that if it doesn't load within two seconds on your mobile phone, people will bail. Half of us will give a mobile page 10 seconds to load before bailing, but the majority seem to not have any patience. This total lack of patience to access what we want spills over into the real world as well. The stats note that many of us won't wait any longer in line than 15 minutes. And they would no longer patronize a business that made us wait and would even stoop to being rude to someone who provides a service too slowly. Oh, wait, or is the slow server the one being rude? The unmistakable message people receive in both the workplace and the marketplace is that 
faster is better. Faster is better. Do you see yourself in any of those statistics? Would you have 10 years ago? Actually, yes, you would have. See if you recognize this blast from the past. Give us a week, we'll take off the weight. Remember that? Don't you love what TV tries to put over on the American public? Get a quaint, catchy line, add a pinch of super meticulous photography blend with a touch of contagious music, lavish with close-ups of perfect body parts in various sensual positions and activities, and, and top that off with a famous spokesperson, and you have the instant, ultra-slim-fast way of gaining, gaining a centerfold figure and all the heaven on earth that you can contain. We have been duped for years into believing the lies perpetrated by an instant generation. How many people actually believed that you could gain a perfect body in one week by drinking chocolate milk twice a day and then pigging out at supper? Really? I will tell you who bought that hook, line, and sinker. The large majority of us. For all intents and purposes, we are and have been for quite some time an instant generation. Webster defines instant as appearing in or as if in ready-to-use form, produced or occurring with or as if with extreme rapidity and ease. This instant philosophy has become one of the most harmful ideologies to infiltrate not only the world, but our Christian lives as well. It is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once without any effort. I believe as others do that our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials and our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. Eugene Peterson has profoundly captured the essence of this mindset in his book, a long obedience in the same direction. As a seasoned pastor, he knows that getting people interested in the gospel is not hard. But it is terribly difficult to sustain the interest. He knows that although millions of people make decisions for Christ, that the attrition rate is dreadful and telling. That although many claim to be born again, the evidence for mature Christian discipleship and responsibility has obviously gone the root of the old diet plan. It's growing ultra-slim, ultra-fast. Peterson says correctly that there is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for the long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Now, there's no doubt about it. We are inclined to the instant mentality. I want it now. I want it easy. I want it perfect. And I want it free. No strings attached. Christians today have bought into this philosophy, heart and soul. We want someone to help us fill out the form that will get us instant credit in spirituality, instant maturity, and instant results. 
We've become incessantly impatient and incredibly lazy. We want all the tourist attractions, the highlights and the high points, but we don't want to walk the narrow road to get there. I agree with Peterson's conclusion in his book. He says the Christian life cannot mature under such conditions and in such ways. It requires something completely foreign to our instant mindset. Time and effort. It requires what Nietzsche called a long obedience in the same direction. That's right. You heard me right. Nietzsche coined that phrase, not Eugene Peterson. He may have been completely wrong in his assessment of God, but he got this idea right. He says, and I quote from his book, Beyond Good and Evil, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. Unquote. Now, just as getting the perfect body requires more than a week of drinking chocolate milk, so a mature Christian faith requires more than just passively drinking in the milk, the sweetened milk of the Word once or twice a week at our leisure. It requires spiritual exercise. It requires spiritual discipline. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. As we continue in our series through this letter, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at two verses today, 12 and 13. In this chapter, Paul's been telling us that the joyful product of the gospel is a Christ-like pattern of life. Paul says that a Christ-like pattern of life engenders unity. Last week, we saw that it exhibits humility. And we saw that the pattern was modeled by Christ himself. And here in this passage this morning, verses 12 and 13, Paul says that a Christ-like pattern of life exercises responsibility. Responsibility. One of the most dangerous heresies on the face of the earth is the overemphasis on what we do for God instead of what God does for us. Wouldn't you say that? There's no question that one of the greatest lies in history dealt out to people is that you can work your way to salvation. However, the flip side of that is equally, if not more damaging. It is the heresy that once you've given your life to Christ and received the gift of his gracious salvation, that you can just sit back and cruise while God takes care of everything. The heresy which teaches that because God is sovereign, we have no personal responsibility. Yes, theologically, I believe that we can do nothing to warrant, maintain, or gain our salvation. It's totally and completely a work of God. Amen? But I will never promote nor teach that we are not responsible to respond to God with practical obedience. True faith works. James says. True faith works. The Bible knows nothing of an unpractical theology. God's sovereignty never dispels our responsibility. 
You've heard me say that before. We need to ingrain this in our minds. God's sovereignty never dispels our responsibility. Let's look at Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Two verses, mountain of truth. We're going to unpack those two. Now, there are three responsibilities that we must exercise in this passage that I see, which when practiced will develop in us a Christ-like pattern of life. They are neither instant nor are they easy, but they are necessary. They're necessary. And here's the first one. You and I must reverently undertake our personal duty. Our personal duty. Verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling. See, there's a danger in the Christian life. The danger of dependence, not dependence on God, but dependence on other Christians. All of us would rather let somebody else do our work for us, wouldn't we? It seems, there seemed to have been a tendency in the Philippian church to rely too heavily upon the Apostle Paul. When he was with them, they were growing and relying on him to lead the way. But now that he wasn't there, they had a few problems. They were becoming disunified. That's why Paul says, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not in my presence only, but, but even more, much more now in my absence, work out your troubles, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. See, Paul, being the model pastor, encouraged them to not base their growth in salvation on him, but upon their relationship with Christ. It's a healthy thing that people look to their Christian leaders for teaching and help, to their mentors. But when they cannot function and they no longer submit to Christ when their leaders aren't around, that's a problem. That's a big problem. Paul seems to allude to this a little bit earlier. If you back up a few verses to chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, whether I'm there or whether I'm not there, you guys need to be working together for the faith of the gospel. The Philippians needed to learn to rely completely on God, not just mostly on God and partly on Paul. They needed to follow a Christ-like pattern of life even when he wasn't with them. See, God has promised to be with us always, hasn't he? Jesus has said that. Paul never promised that. We must be careful that our allegiance to the pastor does not overpower our allegiance to God. That's what he's getting at here in the first couple of words. Too many Christians obey God 
due to pressure from the outside and not by the power on the inside. That's why you have churches, legalistic churches, that force you to follow rules, right? Because they don't trust people to follow Christ on their own. They put a lot of pressure on the outside, thinking that people won't follow unless they do. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because you answer to Christ, you don't answer to a human being. The word obey here means literally just what it says. It carries the idea of submission, to obey as a result of listening to. It's the same word used to describe the obedience of the wind and the waves at the sound of Jesus' voice in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25, when the disciples were dangerously caught in a violent storm on the lake. Remember that scene? Luke writes that he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And they were all amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands the wind and the water, and they obey him? Right? Now let me ask you a question. Why is it that we don't obey Christ that way? The injunction here in Philippians 2, verse 12, is to undertake our personal duty to obey and submit to Christ. Work out your own salvation, Paul told them. Now, before I comment on, on what Paul is really saying with that statement, I want you to notice first what he does not say. Look at your Bibles again. He does not say very clearly, work for your salvation. Does he? And there are a couple of reasons why he doesn't say that. First, he's writing to people whom he believes to be Christ followers. Heirs of salvation, believers. He addressed them earlier in this letter in chapter 1, verse 1, as saints in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, he addressed them as partakers of grace. In verse 12, he called them brethren. So first, he's addressing believers. Secondly, salvation is not a work of man for God, but a work of God for man, which was accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. You know this verse, these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Probably quote them. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Amen? Look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's not about what we've done. It's on the basis of his mercy and his grace and his washing and his regenerating. What Paul is saying to the Philippians is, make your salvation 
operational. He's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying work it out. To work out your salvation means literally to carry it to completion, carry it to the goal, carry it to its ultimate conclusion. The word indicates by its tense in the original language, a continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. It doesn't indicate something that is easy, something that's instant. Neither Paul nor any other writer of the Scripture speaks of a slim, fast salvation. You won't find it. Your salvation is not the product of a 30-second commercial. It is a lifetime process characterized by a long obedience in the same direction. You know what is characterized by? Perseverance. Perseverance to the end. Paul's giving us a command here to take our responsibilities seriously and make it our habit to be fully engaged in our salvation. He's saying work it to its conclusion like a math problem. Now some of you might be thinking, this is heresy. God's the one at work, not us. He's going to bring it to completion. Don't you remember what you preached to us just a few weeks ago, Pastor? Philippians chapter 1, 6. I am confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's all about God. Well, that's true. Salvation is totally his work. But if he is in us and he is working, then we will be responding in active obedience, not in passive laziness. Amen? Even Paul said it this way in Galatians, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. He says, I am crucified with Christ, right? And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's about God doing it, right? But then look what he says. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see those two things hold, held in tension right there in that verse? If God is at work in us, we will be at work for him. Friends, scripturally, there are three aspects to our salvation, all brought, brought about by God, all right? Theology lesson coming up. Take your pencil. Get your notes. Three aspects to our salvation. All brought about by God. The past aspect. You know what it's called? Justification. Justification. There, it simply means that in Christ we have been declared righteous. We didn't do anything to warrant that. Christ did it all and we responded in faith. Got that? Justification. The future aspect of our salvation is called glorification. Glorification. That's the ultimate consummation of our salvation when we will finally see Christ face to face and we will become like him because we will see him as he is. We will have a glorified body just like he does. That is also a work of God. Okay, you got it so far? Past justification, future glorification, and in between justification and glorification is this little present aspect of our salvation called sanctification. Sanctification. The word simply means to be set apart or made holy. 
Again, this is totally the work of God, but it is a work of God in us which will flow out of us as we respond in obedience. That obedience is our responsibility. Get it? The Spirit won't force you to obey. He won't force you to obey. You've got to obey. Sanctification then can be described this way. It's the process of becoming in practice what we already are in position. And that's a long process. It's a long obedience in the same direction. From the point of our when we receive Christ until the point where he takes us home, all of that part is growing and maturing and we have a responsibility in that. It's that outward practice of an inward new life. It's the development of a Christ-like pattern of life. It's the visible process, Paul says it in a number of places in the scripture, of putting off the old nature and putting on the new. The scripture is replete with exhortations to work out your own salvation. Look with me at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lusts. And do not go presenting yourself, the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members of, as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Do you see our responsibility in those verses? Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't go presenting your members of your body to sin. Instead, present yourself to God. You do that. Verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now, Paul says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in, what's the word? Sanctification in the New American Standard. Romans chapter 8. Here's, here's another verse with those aspects of salvation. Verse 29. For those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. But then remember... And couple that with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 again. But we've already read verses 8 and 9. Let me read you 10. Okay, we know that by grace, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, not a result of works that anybody should boast. But look at what verse 10 says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would what? Walk in them. That's our responsibility. God's sovereignty never dispels our responsibility. 
Never does the Bible advocate sitting around and letting God move us around like robots. That's the biggest misapplication of the phrase, let go and let God, that there is. It's called quietism, by the way. It is. Quietist says, no, we, I just have to wait for God to infuse me with power to obey. I sit around and wait for him to do it. We are consistently encouraged in the Scripture to, quote, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Rather than letting go and letting God, when it comes to working out your own salvation, the key is to trust God and get going. Notice also that we are to work out our own salvation here back in Philippians 2. How? With fear and trembling. Well, that's an interesting terminology, isn't it? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This means just what it says, fear and trembling. The words refer to exercising serious caution because of who God is. We talked about that last week, right? He's the lion, isn't he? It's the idea here of not trusting in ourselves. Self-distrust, that lack of self-confidence when under a solemn responsibility. It's the caution that shrinks away from anything that will displease or offend or dishonor God our Father. It's the kind of nervous anxiety and the shaking sensation you get when you're up at the plate, there are two outs and two strikes on you, the winning run is on third base, and your father's watching the game. You don't want to make one wrong move, do you? I sense this nervousness regularly as I sit down to prepare and stand up to preach God's Word to you. Sometimes I literally shake inside. Seriously. There have been times when I almost couldn't function because of it. My insides were all tied up in knots. Not because I have to stand before a whole bunch of people on a Sunday morning, but because I have to stand before a great and holy God on every single moment of my life. It's not that I fear that he'll come down hard on me if I I blow it or if I say something off base. Because my father is not like that but I want to be pleasing to him every moment, don't you? Every moment. And I don't always do it, but we should have that desire. And you know something? Once it's gone, the moment's lost forever. Proverbs 28 and verse 14 says this. It says, how blessed is the man that fears always. But he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And I must admit to you that I don't always operate with that kind of thinking in my mind. But shouldn't I be striving to? Wouldn't you want me to? That's what God wants from you as well. Do you place much weight on working out your own salvation? How much weight do you place on it? Because none of us can designate one single second of our lives and say this, I can safely lose that moment. I may safely spend it in the the neglect of my soul. Do you think we can really do that? 
Yet if we're passive about the fear of the Lord, that's exactly what we do. Paul wrote that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. Where's your zeal focused? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Where's my zeal focused? Because this says that we should be zealous for good deeds. I read that when Teddy Roosevelt was a young boy, he wouldn't set foot inside the Madison Square Church alone. His mother discovered that he was terrified of something called the zeal. Sounds like a kid's nightmare, doesn't it? The zeal's crouching in the corner. That's exactly what, what he was afraid of. It was crouched in the dark corners of the church, ready to jump out at him he said to his mom. And when she asked what the zeal might be, he wasn't sure, but but thought it was probably a large animal like an alligator or a dragon or something. And he'd heard the minister read about it from the Bible. Using a concordance, she read him every verse that she could find with the word zeal until suddenly, very excitedly, he told her to stop. And the verse was from John 2 and verse 17 which says this, and his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up, unquote. (laughs) Now, let me ask you a question. Are you afraid to come near the zeal of the Lord? You afraid it might eat you up if you're zealous for him? You afraid he might get a hold of you and ask you to do something that you're not ready to do? Is that why you stay away? Because we do. We put these protective mechanisms up, don't we? We know that if we give ourselves over to God completely in prayer, that he's going to ask something from us. You know that's going to happen, right? Jesus is, after all, the lion of the tribe of Judah. As I referenced last week, are you in the pen with the lion? Do you fear God that way? We know he's good, but he's not safe. See, I don't think we take our salvation seriously enough. That's the problem with the free gift in an instant society. We don't appreciate it. So people that work for that, their salvation, I, th- I think they, they, you know, they have to struggle to keep it, and so they take it more seriously sometimes. But salvation has been offered to you and I freely. But don't be misled by that. Because, friends, it costs someone else a great deal. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work... Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, our salvation was freely offered to us, but it wasn't free. It cost Jesus dearly. 
Your salvation, my salvation is not just a bus ticket to the holy city and you and I are not just here for the ride. Paul begs the question here in Philippians 2. Are you working out your salvation? Are you working out your own salvation? Paul says that you and I must reverently undertake our personal duty. And by the way, it's an individual's own work. It says work out your own salvation, right? Work out your salvation. It's really focusing on you. Your own salvation. Paul says that you and I must take that on ourselves. No apostle, no pastor, no teacher, no mentor, no parent, youth leader, or friend can work out your salvation for you. Don't rely on them to do it. Because it's not going to happen. No one can do it but you and and the Holy Spirit. I cannot study the Scripture for you. My prayer life does not count for you. My growth in Christ cannot be transferred to your account, nor vice versa. Each one of us is responsible and accountable before God to work out our own salvation. Granted, we all travel at different rates of speeds, different pace. However, no one should be standing still, according to Paul. Not only does Paul command us to reverently undertake the personal duty that we have, but secondly, we need to rightfully understand the power for our ability. Verse 13 again. For it is God who is at work in you. It's God who's at work in you. The original grammar, the words work out and God sit side by side in the original. They're emphasized together. Both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty are highlighted in tandem. The error comes when one side is emphasized to the neglect of the other. Obviously, we need to recognize the scriptural truth that apart from Christ, you and I can do nothing, right? But when he lives within us and we abide in him, Jesus said things happen. You bear fruit. You bear much fruit. You bear much more fruit. As a matter of fact, if nothing is happening, then there is a huge question as to whether God's really in there working or not. Read John 15. Paul says that God is constantly and continuously at work in us. And the word for work, at work here in this scripture, is the word from which we get our word energy from. Just like before, earlier in this this book, we saw that. Paul says that God is energizing us. He's effectually putting forth power within us. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are at work within us, empowering us to be active for Him. Paul was well familiar with this indwelling power, and he wrote about it in a number of places. Turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 19. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Underline this, who is in you. He's in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The Holy Spirit's in you, therefore let him do his work and obey what he's telling you to do. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. 
Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works where? Within us. To him be the glory to the church and Jesus Christ to all generations forever. That power is working within us. Colossians. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 29. Paul says, For this purpose I labor, striving according to who? His power which mightily works within me. You see that, that, that tandem thing that's going on there? God is the one who energizes us so that we can exalt him. As Alexander McLaren wrote, the worker is nothing. The worker in him is all. So some people are so focused on their own efforts that they don't even recognize that it's God that's at work inside of them. He's in there. He's prompting us, drawing us, empowering us, and we sense that something beyond our own strength is at work, but we're so focused sometimes on our own thing that we miss him completely. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit isn't the only force at work, though. You know that, right? There are others also bidding for your attention. The world, the flesh, and the devil are waging an all-out assault Temptation on three fronts. And it means that we will have to make use of every means God makes available to us to stand firm and resist. Is that right? That means not passively standing by, but plugging ourselves into the power source. We can't just sit there and expect God to do all the work, bailing bailing us out of our positions that we ourselves put ourselves in. We have to actively do something. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's turn back there for a moment. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. Paul says, put on the full armor of God. Put it on. So that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And what's it say? And having done everything to stand firm. Having done everything. Note that. Now let's be honest, shall we? We don't actively avoid what we know we should avoid, do we? Not always. If you have a problem with pornography that you cannot overcome, get off the computer. If you have a problem with foul language, stop saturating yourself with movies that have one, two, three hundred plus F words in them. Or misuse the Lord's name dozens and dozens of times. If you can't stop drinking, it's not going to help you to be around people who do. It's not going to help you to be around places that serve. Stay out of the liquor store. Get out of the bar. Get some help. Whatever it is, that sin that so easily besets you for crying out loud, Paul says, do something and stop expecting that God is just going to magically deliver you with no effort on our part. Because he doesn't work that way. Sometimes he does. It's miraculous, but not always. Portia Nelson has written a piece entitled Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Let me read the five chapters to you. Okay? Sit back, relax. 
Chapter 1. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It's my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in. I can't believe I'm in the same place again, but it isn't my fault. It still takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit now. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. <laughs> Make sense? We don't, why, don't we, why don't we ever get to chapter 5? For the most part, we linger around temptation far, far, far too long. Paul says, a Christ-like pattern of life exercises responsibility. We must reverently undertake our personal duty. We must rightfully understand the power for our ability. And finally, we must readily underscore the purpose of our activity. The purpose of our activity. Verse 13 again. For it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Very simply, everything we do in our Christian lives is aimed at one purpose and one purpose alone. What is it? To glorify God. God is energizing us to will and to work for his good pleasure, it says. His energizing power not only enables us to do what he asks, but it also gives us the desire to make that choice. Augustine commented on this. He says, quote, but... We will, but God works the will in us. We work, therefore, but God works the working in us. Make sense? One more scripture. Well, a couple more scriptures. But Psalm 37. Psalm 37. I love this psalm. Especially these verses, verses 3 to 5. Psalm 37, verses 3 to 5. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And what's it say? He will give you the desires of your heart. Does that mean you're going to get what you want? No, it means he's going to give you a desire for what he wants, and then you'll get what you want. Make sense? Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in it, him, and he will do it. Notice the commands. Underline them. What we have to do, trust, do good, dwell in the land, cultivate faith, and delight yourself in the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord. Trust also in him. See, that's all our responsibility. God's at work continually giving us the power both to actively desire and to actively display His will for His pleasure. We must underscore that and remember it. It's God who saves. Make no mistake about it. It's God who is at work. It's God who gives us the power to achieve His purpose. But it is our responsibility to respond to Him instantly. Instantly. 
Now, before I make an end of this, I think it's worthwhile to remember what Peter sought to remind us of. Turn to 2 Peter for a moment. You might be asking yourselves right now at this point in time, well, that's all well and good. How do I work out my own salvation? If you haven't gleaned anything from what I've said so far, I'm going to let Peter tell you exactly how to do it, okay? You can't argue with Peter. You could argue with me, but you can't argue with Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Remember now, Peter is writing to those in verse 1 who have received a faith the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, okay? He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything, underline that, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now here we go from verses 5 to 11. This is how you work out your own salvation. Ready? Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you, what's it say? Practice these things you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Is that practical enough? Mark Buchanan, in his book, Hidden in Plain Sight, is all about this passage. He says a few things which I want to share with you. He says, you will thrive if you take hold of these things and you will languish if you don't. Possess them in increasing measure and the life of Christ can flow unimpeded through you. But fail to acquire them and you'll end up like that old cartoon character, Mr. Magoo, nearsighted, absent-minded, swerving every which way, wreaking havoc to which mostly you're oblivious. And all that and worse, you'll forget you've been forgiven and so you'll live like you're not. Are you feeling stuck in your journey of faith? Maybe it's due to what Peter says, undernourished virtue. You can pass the blame elsewhere, the devil's devices, life's pressures, the season of life that you're in, but it doesn't do any good because as Buchanan honestly put it, stuckness has nothing to do with any of that. Almost always it has to do with me. And Peter helps us see that. Peter says, I have already have everything I need for life and godliness. We just read it. I can today participate in the divine nature and partake of it and escape the corruption of the world. 
Peter says. That life has been made available to me in full. Only there's some assembly required, right? Now I must make every effort to attain what I already possess, or more to the point, to fully possess what I've already attained. A car never driven goes nowhere, right? It doesn't. A dollar never spent buys nothing. And I love you never spoken woos no one. I can gain the whole world and heavens besides, but lose it simply by not using it. Peter tells me I have gained the whole world and heaven besides. And he tells me, therefore, to do what makes the only sense. He says, make every effort. Get to work. That's what Peter says. Dig and stretch and reach and struggle. Throw yourself headlong and two-fisted into the fray. Make it all count. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, Peter says. Verses 10 and 11. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These seven virtues, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, they're all touchstones of our election and calling. They are a primary evidence that God in Christ has chosen us and spoken to us. We know all this already. But it's a good reminder, Peter says, that something utterly good beyond all that you could ever ask for or imagine has come into your life through Jesus Christ, but that to taste the fullness of this gift, you must embrace it with passion and imagination and discipline. But my friends, here is the point. You must, he says, make every effort. God's given it all to us. Everything we've dreamed for, a life where you have an abundance, kindness to overlook and overcome an insult. God says you've got the power to do that. He's given us the knowledge that makes us deeply effective and highly productive for his kingdom. He says, we have the self-control that empowers us to take off the lust and the anger and the envy and put on peace and love and generosity. All of these things flourish already in your life right at hand, close enough for you to gather in fistfuls and armloads. But he says, you have to make the effort. There's a strange calculus in Peter's seven virtues. Peter begins simply enough employing the rudiments of arithmetic. He says, add this to that. Take this one thing and join it to the next thing. And then another and another. And repeat the process from the beginning. It all has a grade school simplicity to it. But the consequences are stunning. This rudimentary arithmetic results in geometric exponential growth, Peter says. Splice together ordinary virtues, a little goodness to a bit of self-control, add a pinch of godliness, repeat and repeat, and one day the combination shoots you through the roof. You find yourself godlike in strength, Christ-like in attitude, just from adding things up. Let me close with this. You all know about the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Probably all seen it. The first movie of the Lord of the Rings. Frodo and Sam are leaving their beloved shire of streams and valleys and meadows and forests, and they're on a journey that's going to take them to the very ends of the earth. 
only they don't know that yet. They think they're simply traveling to the next country. As they cross the field, Sam stops and Frodo stops as well. Do you remember the scene? What's the matter, Sam? If I take one more step, Sam says, then I'll have gone further than I've ever been before. Frodo smiles, walks back to him, puts his arm around him. Come on, Sam, as Gandalf says, it's a dangerous thing just going out your door. And together they take the next step and the next step and the next step into dangers, into wonders beyond their imagination, into a life that transforms both of them into life to the full. They really lived. Are you ready to take the next step? Why don't you take a step further than you've ever gone before and see where God leads you? Let's pray. Father, we hesitate to go further than we've gone before. I do. And I'm sure my brothers and sisters here in this room have done it too. But God, give us the desire. You say in your word that you have given us desire. Let us give ourselves over to you that you may put those desires in us, that we may put one foot in front of the other and add all these virtues that you're so diligently trying to work out in us, one to another, that we may end up in the place that you have called us to be. Thank you that salvation is a gift. Thank you also, Lord, that you call us to respond to you with diligence and effort. And we rely on your spirit to take us to the end. Till the day when we see Jesus face to face and we live in his kingdom. We long for that day, Lord, and I pray it comes soon. For the sake of your name, amen.